Welcome to Future Makers, your invitation to cutting-edge debates on our changing society with leading thinkers from the University of Oxford and beyond. As we've gone through this series, each conversation with our guests has left me with a strong sense of the scale of the problems climate change is already bringing, and even greater threats in the future. But I also see grounds for hope in the keen awareness that so many of our brightest minds are working together on potential solutions. These solutions can involve either climate mitigation, reducing our impact on the climate, or adaptation, the process of adjusting to our changing environment. I wanted to learn more about how these solutions are developing, and I was particularly interested in the contrast between engineering approaches, such as technical methods of carbon capture, novel methods of building, or physical climate defences, and natural approaches, such as reforestation, changes in farming patterns, or restoring wetlands. With the stakes so high, how far can we harness nature to help deal with the problems? And how far can we rely on our own engineering? With me to discuss these things today are Natalie Seddon, who having trained as an evolutionary ecologist, is now Professor of Biodiversity and Director of the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. Jim Hall, originally an engineer and now Professor of Climate and Environmental Risks, who is an expert on climate risks to infrastructure and who for 10 years sat on the UK Independent Committee on Climate Change. And Dr Helen Gavin, Oxford Martin Fellow, an environmental scientist and sustainability professional, bringing 18 years of experience in both industry and education. Welcome to you all and thanks for coming. Great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Jim, you've worked on the reports that have given some of our clearest warnings about climate change. To start us off, can you frame the issues we're discussing today? Yeah, sure. Let's start with the basics that the Paris Agreement of the United Nations, also the UK Climate Change Act, clearly are structured around the two sides of responding to climate change, usually known as, as mitigation and adaptation. Don't ask why those names came into existence. But mitigation is basically reducing greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. Adaptation are the steps we take to be able to cope with the impacts of climate change. And so just to clarify, yeah. so mitigation would be trying to reduce the extent to which, say, the global temperature goes up. Adaptation is finding ways of dealing with the high temperatures that we get. Yeah, absolutely. And both of those things, it would not be an understatement to say are utterly transformative in terms of our economies and civilizations. Mitigation means drastic cuts. In fact, elimination of carbon emissions from the energy sector that then has to go through into much more challenging spaces because the energy sector we can decarbonize with renewables now for costs which are 
um, becoming cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, so that one's becoming a no-brainer, but that's just the starting point um, because then one has to look into the transport sector and what we fuel vehicles, aeroplanes, ships with, uh, parts of industry, um, some of which are very difficult to decarbonize, like the cement industry, um, and then uh, deforestation, um, which brings us close to the topic of nature that we're focusing on today. Adaptation is, in a sense, an extension of all of the risk management things which we do to cope with climate extremes at the moment. So floods, droughts, hurricanes, storm surges, extreme heat. Those are things which society has had to cope with um, forever. We're seeing an increasing frequency of both the extreme and the chronic effects of climate change. So by chronic things, we're thinking about steady increases in in sea levels. Adaptation involves a whole bunch of different things. One can try and um, minimise the hazard by um, building flood defences. One can look at the exposure to that hazard, who's living in floodplains. Um, one can look at more broadly at their coping capacity and, and capacity to recover. How far can we do things using our engineering capabilities to avoid the temperatures going up too much? So engineering and technology is usually the starting point for thinking to to deal with carbon emissions because um, they happen because of engineering and technology and because of the nature of our energy and transport and indeed the nature of our buildings. Um, so these are all built artefacts um, very quickly, one then actually recognises that um, this isn't just a technological issue, it's an economic issue and it's a societal and political issue. Um, and then when you start doing the numbers, um, as has been done in the context of the Paris Agreement, you recognise that uh, even when one does the obvious engineering things, for example, to decarbonise the energy sector and indeed to decarbonise transport, um, we end up still not being where the Paris goals want us to be. Um, and then this notion, which needs a little bit of unpacking, of negative emissions comes into the debate. Um, that, so, that's change, changing things so that we're actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere right. instead of putting it in. Yeah. Right. And for the time being, um, uh, most of the projections um, suggest that we're going to be doing a load of that um, by the middle of the century. And that then begs the question, well, how are you going to do that? In part, that's a technological issue. Can you capture carbon from power plants or indeed from the cement industry and put it underground? Um, but afforestation, biocrops, so growing plants to get energy from those become a big part of the calculation for how we're going to reduce carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And that then raises a whole bunch of questions around how we do that and what are the trade-offs associated with having big areas of afforestation or big areas of, of crops which are grown to generate energy. So that's bringing us around to natural solutions. Nat Natalie, I'd like to ask for your view on those, please. Well, 
All the integrated assessment models that have um, you know, shown us how we might keep to within 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming um, by 2030 or 2050 or beyond, they all do assume, as Jim was saying, um, the deployment at scale of these negative emissions technologies, whether engineered ones or whether ones that involve the land. Um, the ones that involve the land generally um, involve, yes, biomass, um, energy, carbon and capture, and they also involve afforestation, so tree planting, um, tree planting normally on naturally treeless areas, often with non-native fast-growing species that, carb- that, that capture carbon very quickly from the atmosphere. Um, and it's important to really to really look at that um, and the extent to which we can do that. You know, clearly what happens to the lands is very, very important. The recent IPCC climate change and land report indicates that, you know, 23% of net anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases between 2007 and 2016 were accounted for through agriculture, forestry and other land use change. Meanwhile, over the same 10-year period, the lands, our forests, our agricultural lands, absorbed around 28% of greenhouse gases. So what happens on our lands, what we do with our lands, how we manage our ecosystems and our agricultural landscapes is critically important in terms of emissions reductions and also increasing the land sink for carbon dioxide um, and other greenhouse gases. The problem is things like afforestation and BECs involve enormous amounts of land and a lot of that land is occupied by people by smallholder farmers across the world we don't know what the impacts of climate change on those lands and their capacity to actually be able to support forests um, is going to be so you mean we may uh, have the ambition to plant forests Mm. in a certain place Mm. but the the global warming that is already in train might scupper our attempts to do that well, one of the one of the most worrying things is a lot of the pledges um, for tree planting and afforestation in the name of climate change mitigation favour um, single species plantations, as I say, often with non-native species at, at a very, very large scale. And the problem with this is that, you know, there's been a, a huge body of research since the signing of the Rio Conventions um, about 40 years ago that have shown that, you know, if you increase the diversity of your plantations, you increase the resilience of those plantations. So very, very diverse plantations are more able to deal with climate extremes. In other words, they're more able to sustain biomass production um, and ecosystem functions in a changing climate, whether that's a drying climate or a wetting climate. Can you explain why that is? I mean, I can see that a a forest with just a single species Mm. may be less resilient because the trees might get some infection that passes between them and they all get wiped out by, Mm -hmm. you know, like we have with Dutch elm disease or something Mm -hmm. like that. So having Mm -hmm. variety might help there. But you're saying that having variety of species actually makes it more resilient to climate change. Yes, well, absolutely. The more diverse a system, the more able it is to buffer. So biodiversity or species richness or genetic diversity or diversity of habitats, whatever level you want to look at diversity, it buffers against the impacts of change. Now, change, as you mentioned, could be in the form of a new pathogen. And actually, under climate change, we're getting the movement of species, the movement of pathogens over the surface of the earth, often invading areas that aren't used to that, haven't had time to evolve responses to that. And so diseases can take hold and spread under climate change. But also, you get, you know, each species within a community has an ecological niche and it has a, you know, capacity to 
grow, to photosynthesize, to do everything, um, to reproduce within certain um, biophysical limits. And, you know, the more you have, the more species you have, the more likely it is that a species or a subset of species are able to deal with, um, you know, the impacts of, say, flooding or drought or whatever it is that's coming. So having much more diverse landscapes, having much more diverse plantations and mainly supporting um, existing habitats um, is an intact habitat habitats is the most important thing to do but um, a lot of pledges um, around um, natural climate solutions for mitigation don't involve supporting intact ecosystems they involve scaling up massively new crops and um, afforestation so tree planting with non-native species. Is this because politicians are just looking for a simple solution they see oh such and such a species is quick at absorbing carbon because it grows fast so let's just multiply that up and make a pledge. One of the issues is that there's um you know for for various reasons real focus on the carbon and obviously we're talking about mitigation we're most worried about carbon and carbon is you know easily measured and can be quickly uh, sequestered and stored um, through plantations. Plantations also can be used to generate income and um, and this is another part of the story and new crops and new plantations can also you know bring um, um, you know, economic benefits over the short term. And the problem with focusing on carbon is that, or any other single ecosystem service that um, a natural habitat might be able to provide, is that usually comes at the cost of other ecosystem services. And so there's lots of evidence pouring in from all over the world, particularly from China, but elsewhere as well, that, you know, if you don't support biodiversity or if you don't allow landscapes to naturally regenerate and you instead um, have um, monoculture plantations, you may deal with something like erosion um, or you may lock in carbon. Um, and over the short term, you may even increase um, economic benefits to local communities. But you, but that often comes at the cost of soil water, con- soil moisture content and domestic and agricultural water supply. So there can be trade-offs between different ecosystem services. And what the biodiversity evidence suggests is that, you know, if you increase the diversity of a system or you support natural regeneration, those trade-offs disappear and you tend to get win-wins in terms of carbon, biodiversity and water. I mean, what that highlights is that uh, ecosystems are complex and they have multiple values associated with them. And when that kind of butts up against political processes, um, you can get the uh, undesirable or unintended consequences that that, um, Natalie was was talking about, Um, partly because of the difficulties of valuation. And so the things which are relatively easy to value, like carbon, because we have a carbon price we can put numbers on um, it mm. uh, somehow tend to dominate in the choices that are made and secondly because politicians uh, sometimes struggle to sustain multiple ideas in their mind at the same time um, and so if our objective is climate mitigation then then carbon becomes a thing if the objective is dealing with soil erosion, as it has been in in China and the lowest plateau, then we're going to do whatever we can to stop the soil erosion. Whereas ecosystems deliver multiple benefits, um, but you need to be able to value all of those benefits and think about them as being part of your goals. Okay, so I mean, we've got some really tricky problems here, not just on the theoretical side, but the practical side. Helen, I'd, I'd like to ask you, a bit about how you see this as, a, as an engineer, the practicalities of the different approaches. So following on from what Jim has just outlined, um, 
I would uh, define political as being local governance as well, and, and, and uh, not just uh, with a capital P. But one of the difficulties is is needing a shift in opinion as to what might be the solution. So we are seeing uh, claims that afforestation might be the solution, but it's still searching for that s- silver bullet, that that solution that will just fix the problem. And we do need to move towards a more more sophisticated approach. So one of the practical challenges in implementing nature-based solutions is to move away from a relatively simplistic cost-benefit assessment, which will look at the cost of implementing a scheme, be it an engineering solution or a nature-based solution, and then try and derive the or quantify the economic benefit. And this is not an approach which is necessarily um, relevant in trying to meet in, tra- in trying to uh, meet our net zero goals and to combat climate change. Can, can I just get clear what the problem is here? Are, are you saying that the mistake is to think in terms of one measure of success or is it specifically thinking in terms of that measure as financial? I think it's both those things, to be fair. Right. Uh, both uh, potentially needing a, still needing a financial outcome or, or for the cost-benefit assessment to achieve a certain score value, but also picking up Natalie's example of afforestation where we might have a single-species plantation, uh, which is great from a commercial perspective, uh, but over the very long time frame over which plantations need to... Um, the investment period over which plantations are built, uh, they will be uh, they will be affected by climate change aspects. So having a more diverse plantation is more beneficial from that commercial perspective. But that that knowledge, that thinking, has to be has to filter through into the various organisations uh, which undertake such commercial activities. But from from a practical point of view, I can imagine a politician wondering what initiatives should be supported is going to be looking for something where there's a relatively simple measure how look i've got all these people presenting all these different ideas just give me a number that represents the relative utility of these solutions so i can choose the most cost effective you you can understand and what what are you suggesting as an alternative way forward I think we do have to move away from that more simplistic measure. So we maybe have to devise new ways of accounting for the multiple benefits that a resilient ecosystem can provide and take into account uh, new aspects such as um, public enjoyment of the space, mental health benefits, etc. So as an example, the National Trust has... uh, decided to release beavers over some of its estates uh, following examples in Stroud and Scotland. And they're doing this for flood benefits, for a more catchment-based approach to managing their land. It's going to enhance the enjoyment of visitors coming to their sites. Uh, They're basically using these animals as bioengineers. So we have a, a fusion of uh, a biological nice. and engineering solution <laughs> here, which is has many benefits. Uh, but the increased deployment of such approaches has taken time because another logistical challenge is uh, public acceptability and understanding and knowing about such approaches. To go back to your question of, well, how should we think about this? I think there is a version of kind of turning the problem around and and rather than carving it up into a whole multitude of of cost-benefit calculations. And you're absolutely right. We do have to establish priorities. 
um, and thinking in the broadest sense about costs and benefits does help with that. Um, but as we've understood, a lot of this is to do with what we do in the land. Um, and the question of what we do with the land, um, for example, in this country at the moment, um, is a very big question as we exit from the common agricultural policy. And another way of approaching it is, well, what are the different versions of the future that we might conceive of? Um, so there you start with alternative futures. And then you think, well, how, how might we value those? What might be the services or goods that we get out of those alternative futures so, so is this we look at a whole pattern of activity yeah different paths that we could go down and work out which of those look best yes yeah okay so, so it becomes a bit more top down rather than bottom up of carving the thing up into as looking at a whole series of different problems be that mitigation or adaptation um, and actually you start with well what sorts of futures might we be able to navigate towards and how do they compare I see one thing I'd be interested to know to frame this a bit more what's the current state of play around the world how far are engineering solutions natural solutions being tested out how far are people seeing good or bad overall outcomes from these or, or is it too early to say? As Jim was saying it very much depends on, on what local problem or what national problem or what global problem you're actually trying to address um, and sort of to, to sort of make the point that the, currently there's a lot of excitement about the scope for nature-based solutions or natural climate solution and helping us deal with you know uh, the mitigation problem and lots of bold claims made about you know what how, how nature can support us and the most commonly cited um, statistic is that you know uh, looking after our lands and our agricultural lands and ecosystems system stewardship in general can deliver 30% of the climate solution. I mean, what does that actually mean? Um, and, you know, that's sort of a global analysis based on a modelling exercise that, though good, nonetheless makes lots of assumptions about where we can grow trees, whether those um, ecosystems are going to be resilient under climate change, who owns the land, whether things are implementable, and huge amounts of assumptions there and new models in, in, indicate that actually it's probably a lot lower than 30%. However, that's globally. When you, when you look at a country-by-country country basis, which is sort of the question you were asking, you know, it, it, it changes critically. I mean, for developing countries that are largely forested, so I'm thinking about the Democratic Republic of Congo, Brazil as well, enormous amounts of forest there, then, you know, those natural climate solutions can deliver, you know, potentially a very high proportion of the of the, the mitigation solution in those countries, um, and other countries, and, and and especially if those countries are low emitters. So if you're dealing with a highly forested or at least a country with lots of natural ecosystems that also doesn't emit very much, then natural climate solutions are very important for them. For the other countries, it's less so. You know, for the big emitters, it's less so. So you really do have to look at it as a country by country level, and you do have to be very careful about the assumptions you make about what we can actually do with our lands. So I think, again, there's not a simple answer to that question. There are some uh, nature-based solutions which have been in train for decades. An example could be the restoration of mangrove forests around in tropical ecosystems, protecting shorelines like no other engineering um, project could do, but also encouraging nurseries for fish, providing a, a livelihood for the people who live there. Two-thirds of the incoming wave energy is reduced by hitting a mangrove forest. And so the potential storm damage is massively mitigated. And then we move to more recent projects. Um, an example from the UK is the sandscaping project of North Norfolk, which is being done to protect a gas terminal, the Bacton gas terminal, 
but again has other benefits as well. So essentially a lot of sand has been dumped on the beach and the idea is that the, the sea will move it and create a new defence system. Now, members of the public can benefit from this because they can enjoy the beach. It's much more cost-effective than hard defences. Um, so each one of the solutions that could be put in place has a different uh, legacy or experience base behind it. This is a very complicated picture then. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at sort of adaptation and mitigation together and we're looking at the role of, of nature-based solutions, I would say that while there are some controversies and uncertainties around its role, the nature-based approaches to mitigation, the evidence for it supporting adaptation is just overwhelming, perhaps especially in the coastal zone. So we have a lot of evidence now, both in terms of, you know, looking at what natural coastal ecosystems are doing and what interventions or investments in natural coastal ecosystems have achieved. Um, and you mentioned wave energy, and we know that, you know, coral reefs and salt marshes can reduce, reduce wave height by around 70% that um, mangroves it's around 31% and that actually um, the recent Global Adaptation Commission report um, indicated from their synthesis that the, you know, the benefits from restoring and protecting mangrove forests are, you know, outweigh the costs of doing it by a factor of 10. So, it's, you know, it's incredibly cost effective to do that. Now, of course, the complexity comes and, and, and another sort of another key example is, you know, every year um, in the US, for example, um, coastal ecosystems, salt marshes in particular, protect around 23 billion US dollars worth of property from damage during those hurricanes. So an incredibly important role they play and that evidence is pouring in. It's but he, very, here we're talking yeah. mainly about yeah. adaptation, right? Yeah. The fact so, that yeah. we're so, getting these yeah. extreme weather events yeah. and often the best defence to those mm. rather than going for an well, engineering solution is a natural well, solution. Or No, not necessarily. It's, you know, there's a lot of questions around. There's a lot of things that influence the exposure of communities and properties to the impacts of things like storm surges and hurricanes and so on. A lot around geomorphology, a lot around, you know, how they've managed those ecosystems, what structures are there. And I would say, you know, for very, very extreme extreme events, you know, green solutions, nature-based solutions alone can't work. Um, you've also got to think about the impacts of those extreme events on the ecosystems themselves. So if events are becoming more frequent, you know, then you, they, there isn't time for those natural climate defences to regrow and offer those benefits. And so you need to integrate green and grey. And there are certain contexts in which we do need major engineering interventions and other contexts in which actually green interventions will probably do very well and bring this whole host of ecosystem services which have been mentioned. Coastlines naturally adapt to climate change. Coastal landforms migrate inland as the sea level rises. This is sea level has written risen sixty, seventy meters since the end of the last ice age and coastal landforms have, have gone inland with that and the associated ecosystems have have followed them inland. As we face increasing sea levels, then wherever possible those coastlines need to be given space to adapt and the associated ecosystems need to be um, uh, maintained and restored. Where things, of course, become difficult is where that natural process of coastlines migrating inland um, butts up against people um, yes. and communities. And in work we did on, on the Committee on Climate Change on, on, on our report last year on adapting the coast in, the, in this country, 
basically you can think of, of, of the coast in three categories. One is those that um, almost half of the coastline of this country, which is currently unprotected. Some of it is hard coastlines on the west, which uh, stay where they are. Um, you mean because um, they're next to a mountain or something? Well, well they're, they're hard cliffs. Right, um, okay. Um, but it also includes semi-natural estuaries in the east of the country. And wherever possible, we should be allowing those to, to adapt to sea level rise as, as best we can. The other extreme are dense urban areas, cities like London, but maybe also Hull, for example, where they're entirely dependent on hard defences, things like the Thames Barrier. There's, there are ecosystems there as well, out in the Thames estuary. There are salt marshes and mudflats. Um, but basically, the system is is going to rely on engineering and it's going to cost more and more in future right. in order to maintain a very high standard of protection in those places. And there's no option there because nature can't... Nature allows for the coastline to move and we don't want it to move, so we just have to put a big... Well, I mean, the, the, the Dutch are doing versions of achieving very high standards of protection based on things which let's say, are are soft. They're certainly not entirely natural because they involve dredging huge amounts of sediment and pumping them onto beaches and sand dunes. So that is is somehow labelled as soft engineering. And that kind of gets us to the notion that there are a whole variety of different hybrids when we think about engineered versus um, or with natural. Where I was going, however, was was the third category on the coast, where actually it may not be economically viable to continue to put large amounts of engineering in in the face of increasing sea levels. Um, And that's where the really difficult decisions need to be made in terms of how those communities are going to be able to adapt, enabled to adapt in in, in future. And also very important to think about this is, you know, the the global context of this. I mean, in many parts of the developing world, expensive engineering options just aren't an option. Um, You know, and it's like actually in those regions, communities have been dealing with environmental change and, and working with nature in lots of different ways to deal with, you know, climatic variability obviously that's intensifying over time but actually those engineered options aren't an option for them and yet there's an awful lot of learning experiential learning in communities and I'm thinking particularly of someone like Bangladesh which has been right at the you know the you know at the front edge of, of climate change and there you've got all sorts of innovation quite simple innovations working with nature that just doesn't require a big engineered approach and we need to show so Can really a examples? great example of that something I learned about quite recently is something called floating agriculture so there's, there are whole areas of Bangladesh that used to really rely on rice production. The growing season for rice is shrinking every year because the area is getting more and more flooded. So the flooded the flooded season is, is getting longer and longer. And what the communities there are doing, they're working with an invasive species called water hyacinth and they create these floating, these linear floating beds of water hyacinth which they uproot and allow to decompose. And then on those floating beds, they are able to plant vegetables and fruit. And they're able to do that year round. Now these beds go up and down with the water level they tend these beds using their their boats 
I am told that inputs in terms of fertilizers and pesticides are very, very low. They're dealing with an invasive species at the same time. And also they're having sort of year-round nutritional diversity, which is actually something they didn't have before. And also year-round employment, which is critically important. And this is sort of working with nature. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful solution. And also it's ready to go to scale and is in fact going to scale. But it's, it's sort of a, an adaptation in the context of agricultural productivity and flooding that a lot of the world doesn't actually know about. But what actually some of those areas, especially across Southeast Asia, which are getting wetter and wetter and more extreme flooding, they're going to benefit from, from that. So one of the things we have to really be mindful of is that there are a lot of these local solutions, some of which like this are ready to go to scale, that we all need to learn about. And there's a lot of learning that we in the north that tend to place a great deal of emphasis on engineered solutions. We in the north have a lot to learn from the global south who have actually been dealing with them at some of these extreme impacts for That's longer very, than we have. Can I yeah. just, just a sceptical voice there. Yeah. I mean, you, you say this solution can go to scale. In, in Bangladesh, it's going to scale. Okay, yeah. but yeah. I can see that you may be able to solve some problems with, with the sort of solution you've outlined. It, it gives you a profitable crop and a way of dealing with it. But at the same time, it's forcing you towards one particular kind of crop. It's not dealing with the loss of land for other things like living. I mean, is, is there a risk here that we're, we're back to what Helen was criticising, the thought that there's a magic bullet here? No. I mean, when we talk about, I mean, certainly when I talk about nature-based solutions, and my colleagues do, we're not talking about any sort of one-size-fits-all. We're talking about, you know, the locally relevant solutions. And this is a very relevant and appropriate um, solution that works with the governance structures and the socio-political context of that area. And this is an area where actually, in adapting to a longer wet season, a longer period of flooding, they've actually enhanced their levels of employment and nutritional diversity. So it's actually been a really, really good thing. Even if we manage to stay within two degrees of warming you know a lot of change is coming we're going to have increasing droughts in sub-saharan africa and increasing flooding in southeast asia and so we need to adapt and develop these these solutions and whereas in africa agroforestry is becoming an increasingly important way of stabilizing yields in increasingly drier more variable climates in southeast asia things like flooding um, floating agriculture maybe you know seem to be as increasingly important way of enabling livelihoods and, and nutrition you know in a, in a very challenging environment and we have a lot to learn from those communities and there's no engineering aspect in those ones in any way it's not affordable to those communities they don't have very much so what i'm getting from you is that often people look at this too much for a sort of big picture assuming there is one thing we have to do but what you're saying is there are lots of different things uh, there's engineering there's natural solutions there are all sorts of hybrids between those and a lot of those are very local so we have to be able to learn from lots of different places i mean Coming close to home and, and our locality, Helen, you've made quite a lot of changes to adapt your own home and life to be more sustainable. Can you tell us a bit about that? Certainly. So one of the ways, in, or maybe the most important way of tackling climate change is to tackle energy use. And certainly in the UK, uh, space heating and transport are the largest emitters of greenhouse gases. So personally, being somebody who wants to minimise my own impact, I have an electric car. I have insulated my house as much as I possibly can. I have solar panels on the roof and I'm fortunate to be able to afford to do that. I want to completely come off the gas supply, but again, the the economics of that don't stack up at the moment. But it's fine for individuals to do these actions and arguably we should all try and do as much as we can, including just using less, which means we waste less, we waste energy less, we waste food less. But there's only so much individuals can do or communities can do and we really need to look for that systemic structural change which will enable us all to move in a more positive direction so picking up from what Jim said uh, earlier about uh, looking at different future 
possibles, possible futures, if we agree that we're, we are going to go down a route which is two degrees uh, average warming. 1.5, we hope, right? Or... We hope, yes, <laughs> uh, indeed. Um, we do really need to shape the way we think about things and put uh, policies and mechanisms and actions in place now, given the legacy of our decisions now mm. and how long they will last for in the future. Uh, so again, looking to the future, there's going to be an increased need of energy, uh, not least for cooling around the world. Now we can try and um, encourage the development of more nature-based cooling solutions, such as building design, trees, water, look to almost ancient architecture, uh, and try and implement those into our into the buildings we are uh, that are being constructed now in order to make them more resilient for the future. I like the, your, your reference to sort of ancient architecture and I think we have an enormous amount to learn from the past. It's a sort of a way of thinking of going back to going in order to go forward and about, you know, using technology to enable nature-based pathways, nature-based futures, but also using nature to enable, you know, technological transformation, innovation. And we've talked a bit about nature in the context of coastal defences, but I think, you know, you raise the important point that, um, you know, what we do in our cities is, is vitally important. I mean, I think it's around... 80% of the world's population are going to be living in cities by the end of the century, something like that. You know, what happens in our cities is incredibly important and there's an enormous scope for bringing green and blue infrastructure into cities and there's good evidence building up across Europe but also elsewhere in the world that when you do that you can reduce those average daytime temperatures, you can also deal with um, floodwaters within cities to a certain extent by bringing green and blue infrastructure in there and then you have all the whole cascade of you know mental and physical health benefits that having green spaces in city brings and that's a sort of a positive view of the future, very positive view of the cities, but a lot of the aspects of that will be informed by ways of working from the past. And so it's a sort of can, a really... Can you give some examples of ways of working from the past that we need to bring into our cities? Oh, well, I won't comment on the architectural one because I need to I need to explore that more. I just like the idea that some of the sort of, sort of buildings that were, were built in the past sort of let air and light through them in, in a way that... that and, Indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah and yeah. so, yeah, Mediterranean ar- architecture from exactly. a long time ago, yeah. And those in the Middle East as well well but uh, maybe just to pick up on on one aspect there is it emphasizes the need to shift our opinion and and while around the table we might be agreed to this fusion of nature and and engineering as being both relevant solutions to tackle the issues that we face that level of understanding does need to trickle down to those people who implement schemes who design schemes Um, we saw recently maybe trickle up to our politicians. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. And, and the people who uh, um, give funding for different activities. We saw recently an uproar of local citizens in Sheffield because the trees were being cut down because they were considered to be a pain. They were too costly to maintain. Yet they, there was such an uproar from the citizens who very much valued the presence of those trees that I think the scheme was halted, but I'm not sure if it was uh, completely stopped. Um people became more aware of all the benefits that the trees do provide in terms of shading and therefore a cooling effect, air quality benefits, as well as the the mental health benefits of being in a green um, environment. And so there was a a protest by the local citizens. I mean, another example from Portland, Oregon, which is the other way around, was uh, where they were spending millions on um, maintaining the grey infrastructure, the, the road runoff infrastructure, um, pipes, etc. And they were struggling to uh, cope with the level of water runoff and the pollutants that were running, uh, that 
were in the runoff. And so they've rolled out from 2007, they rolled out something called the Green Streets process, which basically implemented shrubs and trees all along um, various streets within Portland. And this has shown that the amount of runoff has decreased, air quality has improved, temperature in those streets has decreased, um, and so has the number of pollutants in the runoff, uh, which does collect in the mm-hmm. in the uh, pipe network. So again, it's an example of um, a nature-based solution, which has so many other benefits, but actually does also tackle the, uh, the critical issue, which was to be able to cope with the amount of runoff coming off the roads. One of the dangers of always sort of framing nature-based solutions in the context of climate change is that it can, you know, there's a moral hazard there and it can be therefore seen as an alternative to decarbonising the economy. But it's just, you know, we must all keep, you know, go, you know, emphasising the fact that the decarbonising the economy is absolutely essential. Um, but also when you're talking about working with nature, it is also good not to talk about climate change in the sense there are so many reasons why looking after our ecosystems is important, why bringing nature into cities is important and it's like you know you have to when you're talking to communities individuals governments you know what are the set of problems that most concern them is it education you know is it is it jobs you know what is it that really worries them because you know there are you know massive benefits to economies and to you know job creation all sorts of other things that all sorts of other reasons why looking after our ecosystems looking after what is effectively our life support system makes a lot of sense and you don't have to alienate and you don't have to you know greenwash or be accused of greenwashing by constantly referring to it in the context of climate yeah, I'd like change. I'd to come back to greenwashing okay. in a moment yeah. but Helen there's you want oh, to... Just to pick up on that uh, and another two examples from a very pe- a person pers- um, orientated perspective which is Natural England um, have encouraged everybody to get outside mm. uh, for the positive mental and physical benefits that that will give them but also something I learned recently, which is analog astronauts who are training to go on missions to Mars. They are they spend uh, periods of time um, kind of essentially locked away in a, a mock-up of a, a spaceship, which is coated in wood. They have wood panelling or kind of similar wood panelling on the walls. And the reason is because humans need some link yes. with nature. Yes, yes. We feel much happier if in a a log cabin than a concrete box, yeah. What I'm getting from this is a very complex picture. There isn't a magic bullet. There's engineering solutions, there are natural solutions and hybrids, and these are different all around the place. None of this can be reduced to simple numbers. Now, in a context like that, there are going to be players in the market who have an interest in doing things that are not necessarily in the public good. And they might be pointing to some supposed solution, grow lots of trees, then we can carry on doing what we're doing. Is is that the kind of thing you have in mind, Natalie? Absolutely. I mean, there's a real danger of that. And in fact, many advocates of nature-based solutions or nature, natural climate solutions are being accused of, of handing the fossil fuel industry a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, whereas the, you know, the, the science indicates that, you know, we can't use natural climate solutions as an offset for so, continuing emissions. It has would to you be. give the same criticism to people who make long flights across the world and say it's OK because I've 
paid into some scheme which is planting trees to take up the carbon. It's the wrong way of thinking about ecosystem stewardship. It's the wrong reason to be looking after our ecosystems. You know, we can't we can't offset, you know, the, the math, you know, the maths and the physics. They don't it doesn't work out. It doesn't work. You know, if we're heading for a, a two degrees world or one point five degrees world, then natural climate solutions can basically reduce that by about a quarter of a, um, a degree. That's what that's what the models and, and currently that, indicate. But if we're, but, but if we we're run he- out of space. No, and if we're heading for a four degrees world or a five degrees world, then then what we do with our ecosystems won't make any difference. I mean, everything will be so you know radically transformed, and the resilience of those ecosystems to provide any ecosystem services will be massively compromised. So you have to keep fossil fuels in the ground, and you have to look after your ecosystems. And the reasons for looking after ecosystems are multi are multifarious, and you know. But, and there's the other thing yeah. is about raising expectations. It's like you know if we're saying we're going to deploy all these negative emissions technologies, then that gives people hope, saying, oh well, it's okay to continue burning fossil fuels because we're going to have all these technological, you know, or even green approaches to, to, to offsetting that. So even to talk about net zero is a bit misleading and a bit problematic because, it, you know, it assumes that it is okay to continue emitting and to, to continue drilling for fossil fuels when it really, really isn't. And, and so if, much of the technology... If the world reached net zero... Then would it be okay? You still have to, you know, you still have to then remove, you know, colossal amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. 100, right. 130 gigatons a year, every year for 100 years. Right. Uh, can a you? Lot. Pu- <laughs> yeah, that sounds like <laughs> a big number, Jim. <laughs> Natalie m- made the the point around managing expectations, and I, I I think we need to also think about that in the um, adaptation context, and it's a point which applies. Um, both to nature-based solutions and to engineered solutions. So, uh, in a sense, engineered solutions, be they seawalls or reservoirs to store water or desalination plants to, uh, to, to get water from the sea or air conditioning to, um, to cool homes, um, uh, they ha- give this um, impression of being a, a solution. First of all, there are all sorts of... Um, side effects, not least the amount of energy entailed in, in almost all of those things. Um, but also, if we think, for example, about um, sea walls, there's a sense of security which people get by living behind them, um, and they often neglect the fact that there is a residual risk. There's always a non-zero probability that the seawall is, is going to get um, overtopped in an extreme event. Um, and then when that, of course, yeah, or, or breach or wash away. So then when that um, catastrophe does happen, the, the consequences are enormous, as we've seen in in, uh, uh, in in big floods around the world. I think there's also, I think, an equivalent um, version of that expectations issue with respect to nature-based solutions as well. And I think we need to be quite cautious Um, For example, about these commitments being made around forestation, catchment restoration in this country, um, that we know that um, nature-based solutions, so-called natural flood management, um, works in the context of smallish floods. Um, Once the ground becomes completely saturated, more water runs off. So if you have prolonged and extreme rainfall, 
they're going to they're, they're going to have much less and quite possibly negligible effect and similarly in in very large catchments the evidence of the benefits is is much more shaky than it is in small catchments and i i think that there is a potential issue with with communities where um it's not cost beneficial to build an engineered flood protection um now being told that there's going to be a load of catchment restoration afforestation up in their catchment um and they might feel that that that's going to fix the flooding problem when in fact um if there's an extreme and prolonged rainfall event there's still going to be a flood um if we think about one of the most celebrated restoration um and nature-based solution projects in this country is is in pickering um Actually, that's a hybrid project. There's a there's an engineered flood storage upstream from Pickering, as well as some very interesting and beneficial things going on in the catchment. Absolutely, I think um, you know when you think what's the vision for the future, the vision is the future is, is having very multifunctional landscapes and seascapes and coastal scapes. You know where you're bringing together these different types of solutions where you've got the green protecting the grey, the grey protecting the green, the, the grey offering maybe solutions over the short to medium term, the green offering solutions over the long term. And the only thing we can really be sure about the um, the future is that a lot of change is coming. We don't know what change is coming. It might be increased droughts, increased floods, increased, you know, we just... And then this is this is true across the world. And and you know to be resilient, we have to build landscapes and build agricultural landscapes as well that are able to deal with whatever's coming. And that's going to involve bringing together, you know, com- combining restoration and ecosystem protection with some tree planting, with some engineered approaches to dealing with floodwaters and so on. And, and it's all there in these landscapes. You know, um, these sort of massive landscapes that are only doing one thing. That you know they're not going to be able to to to, to they don't offer much in terms of resilience and reduced vulnerability to people and ecosystems. And from, from the sound of it, this is going to require a lot of flexibility from our politicians too, because yeah, well, I mean, what we're hearing obstacle. at the moment yeah, is, yeah. oh, we're going to plant lots of trees, yeah. and, and that does seem yeah. to be treated as a, you yeah. know, that's enough. Yeah. But um, what you're saying is it's nothing like enough, but also we need to have this huge flexibility and absolutely so so we regard haven't... to local circumstances etc mm-hmm. yeah that, that's yeah. going to be quite difficult isn't it some of the biggest if not the biggest challenges we face in terms of scaling up you know the portfolios of solutions or nature-based solutions are the those governance challenges and the fact that we need you know governments are generally very siloed and in order to be able to govern and implement these kinds of solutions you need sort of absolute collaboration between the department of forestry agriculture energy industry and so on and then obviously you've got the whole transparency yeah in democratic countries are often very keen on very simple messages that they can put in a sound bite which makes it even worse doesn't it helen and I would add that it's not just governments here. We need to talk with land, the owners of the land, commercial operators. So we're talking about global forces as well. So in the situation with large-scale agricultural operators who are focused on monocultures, because that's where they derive most of the um, commercial revenue, it's going to be we need to involve those organisations in the conversation of moving away from that simplistic approach, and that is going to be a huge challenge. Jim. Yeah, I'm quite inclined to uh, give the politicians with the soundbites the benefit of the doubt for the time being. And I think we need to be very careful about um, 
shooting people, in particular politicians, down who are well-intentioned but haven't quite um, grasped the complexity of the of the problem they're diving into. And uh, what we're hearing, um, in particular in, in this country at, at the moment, around commitments to things like um, afforestation, I would certainly give them enormous credit and say that this is a, a step in the right direction. The, the, the next thing is, well, the question of how. Um, and I think we know enough to have conversations about how one does get this right in in different contexts. OK, so the politicians, if well-intentioned, and many of them seem to be, mm-hmm. they just need to be themselves flexible enough to listen to to learn about yeah. all the different yeah i mean it, it is we are looking for, for a different way of of organizing our governments i mean we are I mean, where nature-based solutions are working they're working because those governance structures have shifted away from very siloed approaches to more collaborative you know multi-sectoral approaches and that have sort of you know shaken the norms which tended to favor sort of a default towards engineered and thinking more about nature-based solutions and there are, but there's a lot of path dependency there's a lot of you know i mean we, we oh, ultimately these all these conversations end up pointing to the one thing that we need systemic change in the way we run our institutions and the way we run our businesses and we need to have you know uh, nature positive business solutions regenerative business models we need to sort of get away from infinite economic growth and a reliance on gdp i mean it all gets to that it all gets to about putting you know the value of nature central to decision making whether you're in energy whether you're in industry whether you're in education health whatever sector you're in you know it makes sense and we haven't and we've all our all the all our development gains over the last 200 years are now looking like they're going to be severely undermined because we've not been valuing um, the, all those ecosystem services. That answer of yours, Natalie, beautifully uh, encapsulates a mixture of optimism and pessimism that has been running through our discussion. So uh, what I'd like to do is, is just to sum up how optimistic and pessimistic you three are about the future. And if you had one message to give to future politicians, planners about where they should put their emphasis, what would it be? I would say I am cautiously optimistic and I would implore that people and the environment are placed at the heart of decision making. And what I mean by this is rather than focus on a single objective for a nature-based solution or a hard-engineered solution, that the whole panoply of different costs and benefits or disadvantages can be examined. And also putting people at the heart of decision-making also means broadening out the participation of people in uh, decisions that affect them locally but also nationally, and that can take the form of citizens' assemblies, which we've heard a lot about recently, but other forms of participation. Well, I think for the first time in my life, I'm actually feeling fairly optimistic or at least excited about the potential. It feels like for the first time we have the development community coming together with the biodiversity conservation community coming together with the climate change community. These are communities that have been working hard for decades, but generally in isolation from one another. And they're sort of finally engaging with each other and recognising that we can't deal with poverty without tackling climate change. We can't tackle climate change without dealing with the biodiversity crisis. And this is becoming a mainstream concept. I'm even hearing it when I turn on the radio for in the morning. It's something that, you know, I've known not long known about and all my colleagues have, but finally this idea is becoming mainstream. And we've got really enormously, it just feels like every week, 
the landscape is shifting towards us, that the dial has changed, that we may even have reached some sort of tipping point, social tipping point, in general recognition of this as manifest in the in all the activism, Extinction Rebellion, the Fridays for the Future movements, and in the engagement for the first time, I would say, in any serious way, of the scientific community with the activist community. And there's a real, real sort of growing, you know, emphasis. And I talking to governments, they're listening to that. They, they see that as something that needs to be addressed. So I'm actually quite optimistic and I believe that we have the solutions at our fingertips. Many of them aren't quite yet scalable, but we know what we need to do. We just need to really, you know, really rethink re about the systemic change in our institutions. So I do feel that we're at the moment, I, I recognise though that what we do over the next five, ten years is critically important. So there's an enormous amount of pressure that we get this right and we make 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 the most of the moment that we're at. And the next year, the next two years, very important. Next year's a big year for these communities coming together. We have the UK is going to host the United Nations climate change meeting in Glasgow. It's a huge opportunity for the UK and it's going to be a nature cop. So this is the idea. So I remain optimistic. Um, I agree that um, we need people and ecosystems. We need people and nature at the heart of decision making across all the sectors. And, and more than that, we need to stop separating ourselves from nature and we need to stop separating green and grey. You know, looking after the environment is everybody's responsibility. Um, we need to be ready. We need to be resilient. And in order to do that, we need to be diverse. We need to be looking at a diversity of solutions embedded with and enabled by rich, diverse, multifunctional landscapes and cityscapes. Thank you very much. Jim? I'm an optimist and I, I share those those points from, from Helen and, and Natalie. So let me just inject a dose of, a dose of pessimism um, uh, so we don't get too carried away. Um, one is the, the point that Natalie's already made um, around urgency. Um, and in fact, one of the previous ones of these podcasts um, talked around the, the question of urgency. So there are a lot of interesting things going on, but is it happening fast enough? Um, and I think the other reason for caution is um, that there are forces of reaction around the world, which we, we, we can't um, ignore. So uh, one, one looks at those and, and they are quite formidable. Uh, my final kind of point of caution would be that whilst recognising the need to do different things in different places, uh, to whilst recognising local complexity, we've got to keep an eye on, on whether things add up at a global scale. These are, these are global goals. So is all of this um, initiative, which we'd love to see flourishing in particular places, actually doing enough? Well, that's a very yeah, delicate balance of, uh, of optimism and pessimism from the three of you. Thank you. That's been an extremely interesting discussion. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. Thanks Thank for the you. opportunity. My thanks again to Natalie, Jim and Helen for their time this week and also to all of our listeners of Future Makers. This brings the current season of Future Makers to a close. If you've missed an episode, please do go back and give it a listen. And also keep an eye on your feed for upcoming bonus episodes, starring one or two special guests. I hope you've enjoyed this series. It's certainly been an informative and illuminating journey for me, and I'd like to thank all of our guests one more time. I'd also like to thank all of those involved in the production of Future Makers, 
from the team here at Hartford College, to the university staff involved behind the scenes, and last but certainly not least, to my producers, Ben Harwood and Steve Pritchard, without whom the whole thing would have been impossible. I've really enjoyed the feedback we've been receiving, including ideas about what our next series should cover. So if you haven't shared your thoughts yet, why not give Future Makers a rating and let me know what you think? So, for the last time in this series, I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. <laughs>